Support for WRFA is brought to you in part by the United Ways of Chautauqua County. United Way is a nonprofit organization that mobilizes the community to help every person and family improve their lives. Donations to the United Way stay 100% locally in our community and get invested in more than 40 community-based programs. These programs help students achieve academic success, families to be self-sufficient and financially stable, and vulnerable households to get their basic and emergency needs met. The United Ways of Chautauqua County, proud supporters of community radio in Jamestown, New York. To learn more, visit uascc.org or call 716-483-1561. The Jamestown School Board officially approved the 2023-24 budget for the district at its meeting on April 19th. I spoke with Superintendent Dr. Kevin Whitaker the day before to get into the details of the budget, as well as how New York State affects the budget and other actions within the district. This interview is being done while state legislators are still trying to finalize details of the 2024 New York State budget. Despite the lack of a state budget at this point, school districts across the state must move forward with finalizing their own 2023-24 budgets and other items that will appear on the ballots on Tuesday, May 16th. We have Jamestown's Public School Superintendent Dr. Kevin Whitaker in studio with us today to discuss what the district will be putting forward for voters in May. So welcome. Well, thank you, Julia. Thanks for having me. So we, we've already had an initial preview on WRFA of what to expect with next year's budget in, uh, and also what we heard in a work meeting held in March by the Jamestown School Board. But as, as I'm sure as most teachers would agree, it's always good to review mate- the material. <laughs> so what, what are we looking at for the proposed budget for the next school year? Oh, boy, there's a broad question, huh? So... The overall budget is about $101 million. Uh, technically, if you're really looking closely, it's $101,475,978. And um, that's made up of primarily state aid. And state aid comes to our district uh, in, in certain uh, percentages based on a portf- or based on a formula that comes from a complicated bunch of math that happens. And part of that math we'll probably talk about later, but part of that math is a little bit troubling because it um, underfunds school districts like ours that need quite a bit of assistance. So um, this year, that 101 or so million dollars is made up of about 83 and a half million dollars of state aid. So um, 83, 80-ish percent of the budget, 82, 83 percent is is state aid, and our local taxes make up about $16.7 million of that. And we have some other funding sources that come in from the state that help us with the remaining million or million and a half dollars. And something to to mention that's important is that there is a continued 0% tax increase. So we're managing this situation, which includes quite a bit of effort to help our kids with um, some of the learning loss that has happened over the course of the pandemic. And we're doing so without having to burden our local taxpayers with any increases. Mm-hmm. And I want to talk about uh, one of the projects that is going to be benefiting from um, this money. And uh, that would be this uh, idea of the creation of a student support centers. Mm-hmm. And this is something that I, I mean, if I remember right from the meeting in March, is part of this helping with learning and loss. And could you tell us what these student support centers will be doing? Yeah, so the student support centers um, are designed to provide support for kids who are struggling. So there are different needs at different levels. Uh, For example, the elementary grades need support in reading and literacy. 
So we will have two staff members who are reading certified who will assist students who need those supports. One of the challenges that we have, and it's it's much more complicated, and maybe we can talk later about it. It's one of the things that the, the Maysto case um, revolves around when it comes to small cities, and it's about funding for the supports of students who have challenges academically. And those uh, students who are struggling tend to uh, be a larger population in small city school districts than they do in, say, wealthy suburban districts. So what we're doing here with some of the foundation aid that we are receiving is we are generating those supports. And that means at the elementary level, reading and literacy teachers, two of them, that operate outside of the regular class uh, schedule, meaning that it happens during the day for kids. But as far as uh, teachers, their assignments are those AIS, academic intervention supports, extra supports for kids during their contractual teacher day. So what we've been doing in the past, because we just haven't had any money to do so, is we've been trying to carve out small chunks of teachers' days in order to have some brief interactions with kids. This allows us at the elementary level to do that for reading and literacy throughout the school day and during the time when a student is there. In the, at the secondary level, it's focused on math and ELA. And I'm sure folks have seen over the course of the last years and months since the pandemic, the concerns around drops in ELA and math uh, assessments, state assessments and otherwise. And um, this is designed to support students as they are working through those ELA and math uh, dips that we've all seen happen. So that's what's going on at the secondary level. Same thing. So we'd have each building has a student support center at each elementary building. It would be focused on reading and literacy. At the middle school and high school level, it would be focused on math and ELA. And accompanying them would be um, paraprofessional support people who would help. Mm -hmm. And, well, we'll talk more about expenditures in a moment, but mm -hmm. this does include hiring more staff members. Mm -hmm. And so I think... I, oh, and this is going to stretch my memory here. I think was it ended up it was was it twelve teachers, but then like twenty six staff overall. Yeah. So the I guess two points about this. One is it's two teachers per elementary school. So there's five elementary schools. So there's ten, and then there's three middle schools. There's two teachers per middle school. So there's six. So now we're up to sixteen. And then there's one high school, so two teachers there makes it 18. So we have 18 um, total new FTEs is what we refer to them as, which is full-time equivalents. Um, a lot of times um, when we say we're going to hire a teacher for XYZ, what we're really saying is we're creating an FTE, which is a full-time position, and that position can be morphed however we need to, to morph it f to meet student needs. So the, the second part of it, the word, what about the rest of them, comes from those paraprofessionals. So you have a paraprofessional across each of those buildings, and then that number adds up to if there's one per, um, per student support center, then you end up with that many more paraprofessionals. But the number of teachers is two per building times nine buildings. Which is 18. So, yes. And I think I just passed my math for the day. <laughs> There's a review, yes. So, yes. So, what, you know, going back to the revenues, and you talked about, you know, how we were getting a, a lot more in foundation aid from New York State. Uh, now, we've heard, we could, just because I cover city council and I cover county legislature and all that, are, is there still federal funding in play here with the school district for this year's budget? 
Yeah. So the the, the federal funds, whether they're called confusing terms like ESSER and ARPA, those kinds of monies uh, are in our last year or second to last year of expenditure. So depending on the different type of award, it has to be spent by a certain time. So that time is, is running out, meaning that we have to make sure that we're using that money in order to support student learning and catching back up. So those, those things are currently part of our budget as well and uh, will be through next summer and the beginning of next school year as well but um, locally the state is providing an increase in foundation aid and that increase in foundation aid is is certainly most welcomed it's about nine million dollars nine and a half million dollars this year for us um, which helps greatly with those programs um, and the the challenge with that it's very difficult to look a, a gift horse in the mouth as you as you might have heard because the idea that has been floated is that the governor and the legislature is providing us with some extra money out of the goodness of their heart, um, which is most welcomed and desperately needed. The challenge is that we have been shorted about $106 million over the course of the last decade or so due to underfunding of the foundation aid formula. So our school district has uh, one, of the, one of the factors in the foundation aid formula which is the formula used to determine state aid for school districts based on poverty, um, is this thing called the combined wealth ratio, CWR. And we're going to get, hopefully, not too far into the weeds. Basically, what combined wealth ratio is, is essentially uh, property values and amount of income generated in a local school district. And that gives you a comparison to other districts. The average, and I'm using air quotes here on the radio, air quotes, quotes, um, the average community is a 1.0. So there are some districts um, that if you look, say, at Fire Island off of Long Island, their combined wealth ratios are something like 30 or 26, meaning that they would be 26 or 30 times more wealthy than the average district. Our combined wealth ratio is 0. 0.26, oh, so be about a quarter of a of a 1.0 so we are roughly four times more needy than the average school district so what the request is from the small city schools and schools in poverty is that we are funded um, appropriately by the foundation aid formula which is supposed to provide um, a, a free appropriate public education with the essential um, aid that's required to conduct that and one of the problems with the foundation aid formula is it doesn't recognize any district lower than 0.6. So that's where the funding stops. Anybody lower than a 0.6 with combined wealth ratio just doesn't get the funding proportionate to their needs. And that is so that other districts can get that money. Now, you know, again, the gift horse in the mouth thing is it's great that we're getting this additional money and it's desperately needed and it allows us to do these sorts of things that we're trying to do. But with the Maisto case, we are saying, please rewrite this formula because you have underfunded us dramatically for a long time and we need to have the assurances that we'll be able to afford in communities like ours that would be... Um, very inappropriately beset by massive tax increases to provide services that the state is mandating, but they're not funding. So that would be unfair to our local taxpayers. 
And with the Maisto case, and this is something I was going to ask a little later on, but since we're, we're on the topic now, that case was decided. I mean, the state did try to appeal it a couple times, but the courts came back and said, no, you know, you, you, the small cities uh, that were part of this lawsuit, the small schools districts are in the right here. And uh, yes, New York State, get your act together. And it seems like we've been waiting a long time for all this to happen. And I don't know that we're any further along. Yeah, that's the tactic. So the tactic is uh, we're New York State, we have lots of funding, and we have many attorneys, and you are a poor school district and, and are a group of poor school districts, and you will run out of money before we run out of money. So we will take our attorneys and we will delay this as much as possible. We're ar- we will argue about phrasings, we will file briefings about words, Um, And then we have to respond to those things, and that takes attorney time, and it takes calendar time, and it takes hours, and that means it takes money. And the hope from the state end is that the uh, small city school districts will run out of money before they run out of attorney time, which seems to be bottomless. So the challenge that they tried at first was essentially an appeal. Like, the ruling is wrong, we appeal it. And the uh, court to which it was appealed said, absolutely not. This is a 100% lock-solid, rock-solid, locked-in verdict. So it was a unanimous decision that the state had lost, and they needed to fund small cities. Now what they're doing is they are sort of nitpicking the language and delaying the process for uh, the resolution. And there's nothing really that the remaining schools in this lawsuit can do, probably other than to just keep on paying the attorneys to try to keep at it. Yeah, to a degree. Um, And, you know, we certainly can appeal to the judge in the case because, uh, especially with that appellate court um, decision saying get to it, we can appeal and say, look, we're supposed to have a relatively speedy resolution to this. And whether or not we're arguing over this phrase or that phrase and what that means uh, and whether or not this uh, short-term increase in foundation aid resolves absolves the state of any responsibility to uh, change the foundation aid formula in general, um, what we need to get to is a resolution. And we're ready for a resolution. We've proposed a resolution. And the state is arguing whether or not that's the appropriate course of action. They want to talk about nitpicky details. Hmm. And, you know, going back to this additional $9 million in uh, foundation aid, mm-hmm. there was, uh, at least we heard early in the budget process, I don't know if it's still still in uh, discussions, there was a, um, a string attached to that funding mm-hmm. under Governor Kathy Hochul's proposal, which <clears throat> that a certain percentage of that state aid be specifically um, used for tutoring. So it was like, well, here we're going to give you extra money, but you have to use a portion of it for tutoring measures, you know, to help with everything from the pandemic. Do you, have you heard from any of your sources within Albany that that is still as part of the state budget? Well, the challenge with the state budget, especially this year, we're kind of going back to the old days where we're weeks and weeks late on the budget. <clears throat> the, the challenge is um, when we are funded, and this uh, genuinely um, happened, I would say, with Cuomo really is, is where it happened a lot. These things called set-asides. And set-aside is a fancy word for we're going to tie up some of your aid in projects that we will dictate at the state level. So um, as opposed to saying, here is your state aid, and locally school boards and superintendents 
decide on how you're going to spend that aid based on your need. They're saying, we're going to take away a chunk of it, and we're going to tell you how you have to spend it. So the, the challenge is, of course, we're going to be doing tutoring. You don't need to take nearly a million dollars of the funding away and say you have to do extra tutoring. You have to spend extra money, figure out a way to spend an extra million on tutoring because we think tutoring is a good idea, which it is. But that doesn't mean that you take away the local district's ability to determine where that aid needs to go. So, for example, if a district was not doing any tutoring, then they could use this money for tutoring. If a district was using tutoring but needed money for AIS or for other services, they could use the money for that other services, the other services. Um, what, um, what Governor Cuomo did was originally um, he had created these things called uh, community schools grants. And the community schools grants were monies that were extra and on top of the foundation aid that said, I want to encourage you to bring the communities into schools, so set up programs for parents and kids and community members and services like um, school-based health centers and dental appointments and the eyeglasses and those sorts of things, which is a great idea. Uh, and what he did was he said, if you apply and you have a program that is acceptable, I will fund extra money for you. And it will be, you know, 500000 a million dollars, $2 million, whatever it is. And then, so that was around, and people started those programs. And then very shortly thereafter, the next year, or maybe the, the year after that, he turned it into a set-aside. So I'm going to withdraw the extra money, and I'm going to take away from the money you're already getting as part of the foundation aid formula by locking in a portion of your foundation aid as community schools money and he called it the community school set aside in the same way that this is called the tutoring set aside well that it seems like you know you have a set up yeah like you said like the school board and school administration usually have a chance to decide how this money is dispersed out but in reality from what i'm hearing you say it sounds like the state saying we're going to give you this money but we're going to tell you more and more and restrict it more and more how you can spend it so, yes. Okay. Yeah. No, you've got it exactly. And the, the struggle is, especially for those of us who have or who are in school districts that um, are have been historically underfunded, um, we're still subject to the same accountability metrics and standards that all the other districts are subject to, but we are underfunded. So we are uh, either locally burdened as far as tax dollars um, to provide those services that the state mandates, or we're unable to provide those services because we can't burden our taxpayers with that expense. And now that we have an opportunity to provide some of those services, some of that money is being taken away for a similar and helpful service, but not the ones that are required. Hmm. Well, that is a lot about revenue. I think that I think I thought we were going to get into right away, but I, want, I think we'll, we'll get back into stuff that maybe people are saying all the state stuff. You know, it's so out there, and I think that's a part of the problem with trying to understand budgets at times is that so much of what happens locally here in Jamestown or in other small school districts is affected by what happens in Albany. Yep. So, um, coming back, like more less, I call it more street level. Yeah, sure. Uh, going into expenditures, and so this is where people maybe their ears will perk up a little bit. So one of the proposed expenditures includes a $2 million transfer from the general fund to capital 
to capital projects. Yep. And there are a number of projects that are included in that for our several schools. Can you tell us what those are included? Yeah, sure. So capital projects are capital outlays in, in this sense. It, it Language sometimes is confusing when it comes to schools. And there are, there are capital projects, which are like those big things we're doing at the high school and around other schools, like including the bus garage too. Capital projects are long-term projects that end up getting long-term reimbursement over the course of years from the state. Capital outlays are things we need to do right away and get fixed right away. So in this case, the $2.2 million would be for things like at Jefferson, we would be um, um, rebuilding, recreating the scoreboard at Strider, so creating uh, a more modern uh, scoreboard that actually works for our, for various athletic programs, and we would be uh, replacing the external lights and also doing a um, a uh, uh, announcement board out front that's digitized as opposed to the four fluorescent bulbs in the back and the letters that hang there, kind of like the old McDonald's sign used to make. Um, and then also at Purcell, we are uh, doing a lot of heat and, and AC work. So at Purcell, one of the challenges there was uh, um, and, and I mentioned this at a board meeting, some amazing work was done by pipe fitters and people who lay down that work 100 years ago. Um, but it's time has come. The pipes have worn through, and um, we need to replace those things. All of that heating originally was uh, subfloor heating, so the pipes ran under the, the concrete underneath the classroom, and it warmed the floor, and the floor then radiated to warm the room. And when those pipes started leaking, not only did we have a flood problem, but we had a heat problem. So we needed to shut those down, and this project modernizes the heating and cooling pipes as well. It actually puts those pipings into the ceiling and allows us to hang unit ventilators um, so that a modern and more efficient heating system can happen. And that's gonna cost us a little bit of money. Um, and it, including that with the track updates, because uh, we had we had spent uh, some some uh, capital outlay money on the Washington and the Purcell football fields to get those back in shape and, and upgraded, which is done and, and complete. And um, that, along with the track up, updates, so uh, upgrades, getting that cinder track back level and up to speed and put curbing back in so that um, it's safe again, both for um, rain control and for kids to use during PE. Um, that, that costs about $140,000. The, the Jefferson side of things cost about $700,000. And then at Washington, we have track upgrades as well, and also a renovation to um, the nurse's office in order to create a school-based health center there. And the school-based health center um, there is important to us because one of the things that kids can, can do is they can um, essentially get free health care at school. And that only exists at the high school now. And in order to get that the funding to provide that service, they need to enroll in the service. And the older you get, the less likely one is to enroll in something as a kid. And so if we can get that school-based health center started at Washington, then they will automatically be enrolled when they make the transition to the high school. So we will have kids beginning at the very beginning of, of Washington in fifth grade, being enrolled in the school-based health center, and then uh, transitioning to the high school without having to re-register. So it provides that service throughout 
those grade levels. So altogether, that's about $2.2 million. Right. So, and that's, and that's part of this year's budget yeah. proposal. So yeah, yep. thinking about that, and I, you talked about the, um, the upgrades to the, the nursing station at Washington Middle School to the school-based health center. Uh, what do you find when, you know, have you, have you looked at, has this been done at other schools where you've seen where there have been some sort of positive reaction between having kids enrolled in this kind of program versus missed school or other? Yeah, when one of our one of our concerns when it comes to student health and wellness is the ability to access quality health care, and insurance is an issue, and um, you know parents have uh, transportation issues in addition to those other things. So um, the the challenge is if parents do have access, kids are missing school. If parents don't have access, access kids are missing access to health care. So both of those in various ways are difficult. They're not good for kids. So we want to have the ability for parents and kids to get quality health care while they're already in a place that um, they need to come to every day. So having access to that health care for checkups and eye checks and, and vision hearing stuff can be done right at the at the school location, and then that can continue all the way through the time that they graduate from high school as well. Mm-hmm. Will it be a situation where you know school is going to require a certain kind of health insurance, or will they? It's it's one of those things I've thought about. Like you know, I go to doctor, and it's like they say, "Well, what's your health insurance?" And mm-hmm. and I know some folks, you know, they they qualify for Medicaid and things like this. Will it be operate the same as a healthcare center out? I guess out in out in the real world as opposed to being in the schools. Yeah, it's a, that's a good question because I don't know some of the technicalities. If you have insurance, then it would be covered through that insurance. If you don't have insurance, then it's covered through the process. And that enrollment of a school-based health center um, helps to cover and defray some of those costs from state and federal sources, the details of which I am not entirely certain but there is support there, so any kid can access it. Well, I'm sure that we'll, we'll catch up on with you when we get further along yes. in that project and everything. So one of the other things that I seem to recall being discussed as part of that um, the capital outlay was that, that there may be some monies used for changing whatever the school nickname may be for the high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I know that that's, that reading other articles for other school districts across the state this is something that is still being wrestled with and still waiting for answers for you know from salamanca to uh other other schools out you know in in the eastern side um is that still something you anticipate using some of this outlay money for um yes so not maybe not necessarily outlay money because that's specifically capital related and we've done much of that capital work with the exception of uh, the end zone at Strider Field, which still says Red Raiders. And there are a couple of things around the sides of the, of the field, but um, most of the big, um, the big projects, big expensive projects, have been taken care of already in regard to that Red Raiders thing. So I should probably, um, I should probably do just maybe a brief explanation of that whole process. Um, in... And, and some of my dates may be a little bit off. So um, if you're looking this up on the internet, then forgive me. But it was around 2001 that Commissioner Richard Mills sent a, a, a note out to school districts. Could have been 2004, could have been 2005. Um, sent a note out to school districts that essentially said the following. And 
And the following has specific language because at the time, no one was really sure that the commissioner had the authority to mandate this sort of thing. So the language that he wrote to school districts was, please be considerate, please consider, please research, please make a determination to make sure that all students feel included um, and that we're not excluding any groups through nicknames or mascots or those sorts of things. So that was the first time that that came around. And so districts, some districts, made those changes and they, they jumped on a variety of those changes. Um, I, I, I remember it must have been somewhere near the 2001-2003 timeframe because um, a, a district that was Penfield, I think they were the Penfield Indians, they changed to the Penfield Patriots, which at the time was very much a thing and um, it made a heck of a lot of sense then and they have been the Penfield Patriots ever since. But districts like in a neighboring district that just happened to pop into my head to that district is Fairport and Fairport is the Red Raiders and they've been the Red Raiders forever as far as I know and their mascot is a um, like a pirate um, kind of in a football stance sometimes kind of like that old um, um, uh, Patriots uh, uh, football team logo um, and then in other ways it's just uh, the, the face and head and hat of a pirate so they were uh, thinking we, I think we're good. I, I don't think that references Native American populations, and so I think we're okay, as did many other districts. So many districts around the state took one position or the other. I think we're okay, or I think we should change. So that was early, mid-2000s. Subsequent to that, relatively recently, um, let's say in the past five years or six years, the commissioner said, we want to move more firmly in this direction. And a school district, I believe it's Cambridge, was the school district, had decided that they would make a change to their mascot and their name. And I don't recall what it was to or from, but they decided they would make that change. And subsequent to that change being made, um, the school board had a change of personnel and a change of their mind and reversed the process and said, we're not going to change. We're going back to the original. Um, I don't know if they were the Cambridge Indians or whatever they were, Cambridge Chiefs, I'm not sure. They changed it back and that prompted the commissioner of education in New York to say, you have to justify to me why you changed it back. And the school board said, you can't make us do that. So this was going to be the first challenge left over from that Richard Mills we're not sure phase to a commissioner as to whether or not the commissioner had that authority. Now, whether or not the commissioner was um, uh, dumb like a fox, as my grandfather used to say, meaning uh, I'll play dumb and what I'm really after is what's gonna happen next. And so the commissioner pressed that and the school district pressed that and filed a lawsuit. And the lawsuit was subsequently uh, adjudicated that the commissioner was right. And the commissioner did have the authority to make that determination. Now what that does, and this is why I'm talking about the tactics of the commissioner, that now codifies that authority in the commissioner's hands. It's now law, it's now case law. So based on, on that, um, that ruling, the commissioner now, whereas before it was a question as to whether or not the commissioner had that authority, now the commissioner clearly has the authority to determine to um, what nicknames 
or mascots are appropriate and what nicknames are not. So from that, once that occurred, Jim Baldwin, who is the deputy commissioner, I think senior deputy commissioner is what his title is, um, he came out with a memo that essentially mirrored what Commissioner Mills said some 20 years before and added timelines. You will make these changes by. And in uh, in our case or in the case of, of that memo, um, s let's call it small or relatively inexpensive things need to be completed by the end of uh, June of 24. And the big things like things that cost a lot of money like doing football fields and that sort of thing can be completed by June of 25. And a, each district, if they're part of that group that is using uh, what is determined to be Native American referencing names or mascots, they have to provide a plan to the state. So first you have to generate a plan that says, here's how we're gonna address this. Second, the school board has to approve the plan. And third, you have to submit it to the state education department. It has to be approved by June of 23. So that's not a, um, this is our decision. It's this is the process by which we will go about making this decision. So that's what our committee has done. And our committee is in the process. We've met a couple of times. And they've gone through this history as well and looked at the documents and, and made some, some suggestions and commentary. And we are working on a process by which um, community, uh, school personnel, and students will have an opportunity to submit names and generate a whole list, which will then be called down. And ultimately, I suppose, uh, the top two or three will be voted on by those same constituents, and we will make a change. Now, the reason why we have to make that change is a number of us in Western New York, there were probably six or eight of us on the call. And by us, I mean um, school districts who either were singled out as you need to change your name or school districts that were questioning, does Warriors count as Red Raiders? Native American or not, um, as opposed to chiefs or Indians that were already pretty clear. Um, and we met with uh, Jim Baldwin and a number of state ed officials, including their attorneys and directors, and asked those questions. And the answers were very clear. Yes, you have to change your name. Yes, you do. Warriors, yes. Raiders, yes. Red Raiders, yes. So after that, that's when we knew we needed to move because, uh, and off the top of my head, I think it's Education Law 305 in the commissioner's regulations that says the commissioner has the authority to withdraw state aid from any school district who um, defies an order by the commissioner. So a, a lawful order by the commissioner. And the question was, prior to this lawsuit, prior to this case, is saying you have to change your mascot a lawful order? Well, now it is. So she has absolutely full authority to do that if she wishes. So yeah. that's where we are right now. Right, and this is where we we, we uh, you know backtrack to the school board meeting where uh, school board president Paul Abbott said that you know he wasn't going to stand in the way of this. That the amount of money that Jamestown School District gets is just so much more that there's no way that could be made up um, on on the local side that at all. So uh, so that's why we are here. Where, yeah. why we we are here and thank thank you for all that background because you know th this is a situation where something like a school mascot a school nickname ends up affecting 
school funding. So yes. it's it's all budget related. It so uh, and is. one thing I think I, I think Jason and I talked about. We wondered if with when it comes to this, the Strider Field, if that was a big enough project where that could fall under capital projects, thus qualify for that 95% state aid funding. Because we're saying that that's one of the other things that's in here is that there's no state money for the districts to go forward with this change. But we wondered when it came to something that big, if there was a workaround at least. Yeah, absolutely correct. There is no money, state aid money, tied to this sort of change. Um, from watching the Board of Regents meeting, their take on it was, you should have done this 20 years ago. What took you so long? And this is a penalty for um, keeping a mascot that is clearly um, derogatory toward Native Americans. Um, opinion or not, that's what members of the Board of Regents said. So yes, anytime we have large projects, we try to tie it to building projects. So you can't just another vagary of, of funding sources. You can't just do a project and say, give us money. You have to tie it to building use, meaning if you're renovating classrooms and you're also renovating, say, part of the gym, you can say, well, part of our PE program happens outside, so we would like to roll in a field project that helps with our PE instruction, and then you have to submit that to the state, and the state makes that decision. So um, that, um, that person, actually, who had been doing it for my entire career, which is over 30 years, she just retired, and we have a new person. So we'll sort of see how things go with that new person. Um, and they need to approve that connection, that instructional connection, uh, which is one of the reasons why if you just, and this, this was something that happened years and years ago, maybe even 20 years ago, I don't remember, maybe more, when people first started saying we'd like a turf football field, mm. they weren't tying it to something happening in the building. So it was a straight out of pocket, let's do a field of dreams, raise enough money to buy a turf field. And um, since that time, as long as you can make some kind of connection to the physical education curriculum and, and an internal work being done of a certain dollar amount, then you can apply for and possibly be granted status to do a capital project, which generates aid over the next 15 years. Mm -hmm. And thinking about the turf field, uh, the field that is at Strider Field, I have a feeling I, I, might, I don't think I was here when it went in. Uh, and I maybe I was, but I may not have paid attention to the news, unfortunately, <laughs> ironically. But I'm thinking that that was something that was done outside of state funding. So, you know, I think anybody was thinking about the cost of that, at least that there may be maybe a workaround that could at least save taxpayers some funds. So thinking about capital improvements, talking about these, yeah, there is going to be something on the ballot in, uh, on May 16th where uh, you're asking voters to to consider allowing the funding of a capital improvement reserve fund with $5 million. So uh, are there any planned uses for that fund or is it more of a safer fixing school roofs than other things on a rainy day fund? Yeah, so that capital reserve fund is the fund that we use, uh, for example, in this project to pay for the local share. And the local share in our case, all of these percentages are based on district wealth. So very, very wealthy districts have to pay much more out of pocket, let's call it. And um, very, very not wealthy school districts get much more state aid. So our ratio is 98%. Um, state aid on capital projects, meaning stuff that has to do with buildings. So we have to pay 
of any project locally. And this fund comes from, that's where that money comes from, so that we don't have to ask for a tax increase in order to fund those very obviously, if you have 2% of a, of a $100 million project, that can be funded from within a $5 million reserve as opposed to going out to the, the voters and saying we're going to need a 20% tax increase to fund these heating and roof and windows and classroom renovations, which is just untenable. We can't, we can't do that to our local taxpayers. Mm -hmm. So I think if I was going to put it in, I guess, regular finance terms, this is like that Christmas club account. So, you know, you know, you're going to have to pay money for Christmas presents and uh, you set aside the money in that specific fund and you only withdraw it when it comes time for Christmas. So this is kind of the same thing, but on a much, much larger level. Yeah. And the thing about it is all of these reserve funds are incredibly um, uh, watched, closely watched over. There are regulations. It's a very tight regulatory process. You can't just take. Um, And this has happened. I remember it happened in California several years ago. Um, They were building a new building, but they were laying off teachers because they didn't have the the, uh, money to fund the the teachers. But they were building this new $20 million building or addition to a building. And people were saying, what are you doing? You're laying off teachers, but spending the money. Stop spending the money on the building and spend it on the teachers. Well, you can't cross the streams. They're two totally different things by regulation, federal and otherwise. And the same thing happens here. So we can only spend that money on capital projects. We can't use it for anything else. And you can only fund it up to $5 million, right? Yeah. yeah. So what this would be is kind of saying we'd like to open a savings account that can have a maximum number of deposits to equal $5 million. Now, the, the weird thing about that is that, uh, and, and we also uh, set a duration. This would be in place for 10 years. The weird thing about that is we could fund $5 million all at once, and then we're done. We can't put any more money in there. Or we could fund $1 million a year for five years, or we could do 500000 a year for 10 years. But we need to, um, we can't exceed that $5 million, and we can't put more than $5 million in. For example, if we had $5 million in and we spent $5 million, we can't reload it like a prepaid card for another $5 million. It's only good for the $5 million. So what we're asking is for that cap of $5 million to be allowed so that over the course of the next few years, we can add money to that. And what that does, what these reserves do, is they allow the school district to weather the ups and downs of the economy. So when the economy is good and we have money, without reserves, you have programs, which is great. And when the economy is down and we lose state aid funding and things are withheld, we cut programs and then it comes back and we have programs and then we cut programs. And what reserves do is they allow you to smooth out those highs and lows. So when the economy is down, we can pull some from reserves and we don't have to impact local taxpayers and we can keep our programs. Mm-hmm. And with the uh, the capital improvement reserve funds, you, you have several going at one time. I think you had a project involving the, um, the high school pool that you pulled from funds from I think 2021. Mm-hmm. I think so. I, so it's you have it's like multiple accounts basically that you and you just you set them up because you can't refund or re-up them I should say. So that's why there are. Multiple, that's right. Yeah. Yep. So the the project that's going on now I've forgotten the official name of it, but it's basically like technology and cabling and door access and phones and that sort of thing. That's left over from the past and it's now just becoming completed. And that those funds are coming from that fund source. 
and then it will be depleted and then it can't be used anymore. And that way we can accomplish things that include um, doing upgrades to enhance building safety like that, uh, that don't burden taxpayers uh, any more than we currently burden them with our 0% increases. We have a, still a couple minutes uh, before sure. I have to cut you off. Mm-hmm. But, but I'm thinking about, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about what's involved with the budget, what is affecting the school budget. Uh, and we talked about the capital improvement that there's so when you get your ballot, you got to flip over your ballot after you're done voting for who's running for school board and voting on the school budget. So is there anything else that you would want people to know about what's coming up in the school budget process? Yeah, so the the process coming up here over the next few weeks is that the board will hear a presentation. Well, I should say we've had workshops in the past where we developed this plan of action. We presented to the board, um, and Julia, you were there at that last presentation. Um, and then uh, t- tomorrow night, Wednesday, uh, we will have another presentation to the board, sort of the final presentation. And then on May 9th, there's the official budget hearing. That's the public one. Of course, anybody can come to a board meeting, but this particular meeting is specific to the budget. If anybody would like to come out and hear the presentation, talk about what those details are, ask any questions, you're invited to do that. That's on May 9th at at Jefferson in the auditorium at 6 p.m. Now, if anybody happens to have an old calendar that hasn't been updated, this was originally slated to take place at Purcell, same day, same time. We just moved it to Jefferson in the auditorium, still May 9th at 6 p.m. And then um, a few weeks after that, on May 16th, that is the date to vote on the school budget. So polls open at noon, they close at 9 p.m., and it's at the president's schools, Washington, Jefferson, Lincoln. So head on over there, whatever happens to be closest to your house. There's no... um, there's no requirement you live in a certain school area to vote there. It just makes it easier when we spread it out like that for folks to find a school. You can vote at any one of the schools, but it, um, we assume it's going to be easier to go to the one closest to your house. Mm-hmm. And you have to be a registered voter. You have to be a qualified voter. Mm-hmm. So that essentially means you need to uh, live here for more than 30 days, and you have to be able to prove that you have residency if anyone challenges it. Um, and as long as you are that, then you are good to vote. That's a lot of good information. So uh, it's, other than that, do you have anything else that you would like to add? You know, um, one, of the, one of the challenges that has an upside <clears throat> to the whole money thing is that, as everyone knows, inflation has kind of gone bonkers. And the price of eggs is out of control and milk and everything else. Well, that impacts us as well, especially in the realm of our capital projects. So as inflation goes up, rates go up, and costs for things increase dramatically. On, on another point, if, if anyone is involved in, um, in construction, for example, you understand that there's subcontractors have to bid on work and they have to get bonds in order to get the material in so that they can do the work and then get paid for the work. They're having a tough time getting bonds for the equipment and the materials because of the interest rates and how much they've gone up. So there's this trickle-down effect to us in terms of escalating costs. So there are challenges associated with that that are very difficult for us that we have to navigate as part of our capital project. But on the other side of things, when I started, um, I said rather than holding our money like we have in reserves or we'll get money from the state, it'll come in and it'll sit for a while and then we pay it out in payroll or in fuel costs or whatever it happens to be, 
rather than doing that at a very, very low rate of interest, we could invest it in this uh, program called the Class Fund, and anyone can look it up. It's a, it's an approved um, governmental organization like schools investment vehicle, and it is primarily invested, is nearly entirely invested in municipal bonds. And those are the safest kinds of investment. And what that has done for us, if anyone is aware of how things work, when inflation is very high, bond return is very good. So we have put some of this money into that class fund, and that class fund is yielding much more return than we have ever experienced before. So this will enable us to continue to keep taxes low and provide services to our kids, which is the main function of our school district. Well, if anybody wants to learn more about the budget, hear the presentation, I encourage you to come to Jefferson Middle School on Tuesday, May 9th at 6 p.m. Dr. Kevin Whitaker, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks, Julia. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.